0: This podcast is brought to you by Merrymark Medical, Gimpy Foam and Rubber, and NICAD Earth moving My guest today has faced nearly 3,000 charges and says he's beaten them all, making him the most charged, innocent man in Queensland. For a justice of the peace, Gimpy gun dealer Ron Owen has had a lot of run-ins with police, and I'm pleased to welcome him to our inaugural Over the Bonnet podcast. <laughs> Over the bonnet with Mark Peepers. <laughs> well, at least the guests are good. You'll never know what happens with the conversation when it's over the bonnet. <laughs> you're kidding me, aren't you?
1: Okay, this is over the bonnet. Yeah, I've seen the the Dodge. Yeah, it's great. Yeah.
0: Okay, you're the most charged person in Queensland.
1: That's that's what the media um, put me down as. Yeah, I have had a lot of charges. What happened?
0: What was the first one? Do you remember the first one that happened?
1: Um, well, they, they sort of... Um, problems don't sort of come one at a time. They sort of come by battalions, you know. Um, it all started probably some years before when um, the police commissioners wanted to stop um, my uh, licence for... Uh, an, for doing gun shows in brisbane and um he um sort of suspended or thought he had um my license and for uh, running the gun shows and i appealed his determination in the magistrate's court and then you know the it was found that i had my license it hadn't been suspended he had no right to stop me i won eighteen hundred dollars worth of um uh compensation you know court costs from him and of course i uh, asked for it sent sent letters you know please pay you know the court judgment the date and all that lot and then it, it, you know they didn't pay and so i then um uh it was Jim Jim O'Sullivan was the name of the police commissioner at the time. Yes, yes. It's uh, uh, and uh, then I went back to the magistrate's court and asked for a, a direct court order that he had to pay the $1,800. And um, then he, in 14 days, he still hadn't. So then I went to get a, back to the courthouse and got a warrant of execution. And then um, that meant I could go Um, to the police and get goods to the value of the (laughs) $1,800 but so anyway I wrote to him again and said look I've got this please pay you know we don't want any fuss Um, and of course still didn't get any answer so then I went back to the court to get a warrant of commitment on the uh, police commissioner and um, as uh, Magistrate Swan was getting a little bit sort of tired of the um, of the whole affair. He more than likely would have given it to me. That would have enabled me to go to the sheriff in Brisbane and ask the sheriff to arrest the police commissioner. You see, <laughs> and and so and so then I went to the courthouse. But it was when they saw the paperwork of what was going to trans you know transpire the clerk of courts started running across to the police station and they um, had basically got everybody's cash to give me the notes and of course it made it into the courier mail that uh, that was what i'd done and so there was uh, i did get my eighteen hundred dollars then but then not long after was the um the firearm compensation um, with the uh, gun laws changing with John Howard in 1996. And we were supposed to get compensation for all of the parts and all of our uh, stock that we gave back to them. Uh, The company that we had, you know, owing guns uh, that it operated under gave them um, about $11 million worth of parts and, of course uh, they paid everybody else but they didn't pay us and uh, they paid in um, the first time they, they actually you know sent us back and we and told us to collect the stuff and they wouldn't take it at all and then um, then the, the, our lawyers got onto them and then they agreed to take it and then they didn't pay so we um, took them to the uh, federal court and I filed on them on the Tuesday, and the uh, uh, I filed a conspiracy to injure um, on the director of administration and his assistant, and um, then the uh, we put that in on I think it was a Tuesday, and the Wednesday morning uh, they came round to the shop to uh search and charge me and um I think that you know that was i think it was about six hundred charges that day, and I think that would be the the first group um, <laughs> and they they continued doing that because they got uh, as my lawyers um, fought them off and they had to be taken away because they weren't appropriate, then they'd come back with another 600 or six hundred or four hundred and sixty-six one day, and then um, and eventually we had two jury trials, uh, and the first one they were all chopped out again, and they had to start again and change the um, uh, the the sections that they were going to charge me with, and then uh, we had a three and a half week jury trial and. Um, uh, in the district court, and the jury then said, you know, it was not guilty, and and so that was the end of that. And but then they came back and charged me with another six or seven hundred under the um, uh, the Weapons Act. Were um, you singled out? Oh, oh yeah, you know, they they, they actually <laughs> so singled out that they brought witnesses. Um, to the court that had done exactly the same thing um as what we'd been doing you see and but there was they admitted in court that the detective uh darren edwards uh, had been the, the night i filed on the tuesday that night he'd been uh, on overtime uh typing out all the charges till 11 o'clock that night you know like that was uh um, a specific effort, you know, to counter uh, our court case against them.
0: So why Owen Guns and not other gun shops or other gun Basically
1: shops? because we weren't popular with the police commissioner because of that first, that's the point of me going through the, through the, you know, the bit about the gun shows and the $1,800 costs. It put us at a, you know, a pretty low, um, esteem in, in the view of the you know the queens police and of course we were also singled out is because naya trading and bill naya and robert naya they were running the buyback and they were our competitors so that we were also singled out because um they didn't want to give any uh compensation to their um their competitors
0: how did it leave you feeling, the fact that you were sort of targeted this way?
1: Oh, well, um, it was challenging. It was challenging. Um, the, uh, I was sort of probably used to it, I suppose. Um, it's just, uh, well, I, I accept it as a fact of life, I suppose.
0: you say used to it? What What oh. it on?
1: what brought why,
0: why were you used to it
1: oh well um, my mother used to say I was born on a Friday you see and, and and they have a little poem about you know like it's trouble you know this trouble, child you know and I think I always mm-hmm. had a bit of trouble and uh, uh, I, I I'm very lucky you know like I get a lot of people who, who give me lots of support and, and ideas and aid and you know um, and uh, I um, uh, but on the other hand there's lots of people who, who get pretty upset with me yeah
0: is that because you do challenge the, the status quo
1: yeah I do ask a lot of questions yeah
0: and that comes from you being you, you've always done it since you were a child tell us about let's go back to your childhood let's find out about what's created the RONO and that we have today?
1: Mm. How much time have you got?
0: <laughs>
1: <laughs> yes, well, yeah. Where would you want to start? Um,
0: Just where you want
1: to... Yeah. Um, oh, well, as I was saying to your wife there, uh, I, um, I was uh, born in Manchester, Stratford, um, which... Was a very uh, sort of like a street like uh, the Rovers Return Coronation Street type place, probably not as upmarket as that. And um, the, um, uh, the my formative years, you know, were 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 basically in the streets of Manchester. And um, then um, what was that like? Oh, it was it was, it was good. I mean, like. It's much worse in those areas now, but in them days it was. Everybody knew everybody's business. The families had lived in them houses for you know, hundreds, hundred years. You know, since they were they were built in the uh, 19th century, and um, the, all the ladies used to stone the steps, and the washing used to be across the street, and the um, a doctor. Might visit the street and everybody be talking because the, the you know the doctor's car had been at number nineteen and they'd had to take the washing down, and um, you know like <laughs> the, the, if somebody died you know that the the curtains would be closed and, and and the coronation the big street parties and all the everything coloured um, streamers everywhere and uh, jelly and ice cream for the kids and sort of stuff. And that was not long after rationing stopped. Um, and it was a very tight community. Um, you, the, the young people couldn't really play up in them days because everybody knew, everybody, and knew what they were doing and where they were. And uh,
0: What about yourself? Did you play up much?
1: Oh, oh, no. I was more or less into, you know, um, making things and guns and and reading and stuff like that, you know. So the interesting guns. Like, like My dad would tell me to go out, get outside and play in the street, you know, but, you know, because everybody, you know, the kids used to play football in the street when I was never keen on ball games. Yeah. Um, it's, uh, yeah, he it was a, a very, very, hard for me to um, get out and shoot and all that sort of stuff that I love doing you know and probably that was what sent me well I joined um, the small ball club and, um, uh, when I was about 12 um, I joined the army cadets when I was 12 the 22nd Cheshire Regiment used to go on camps and go on shooting and, and um, I shot up busily for the small ball club you know in the juniors you know and
0: uh, oh, Bisley, just for someone that doesn't know,
1: oh, Bisley, oh, it's the place where all the Queen's prizes it's the shooting center of Britain, you know, like where um, it was uh, all the international Commonwealth games sort of thing, uh, of Britain in shooting. Uh, Queen Victoria opened it, you know, it's uh, been there a long time. Uh, it used to be at Wimbledon, um, but they um they put those awful tennis courts there and uh,
0: (laughs) so what actually got you into shooting in the first place you know obviously if you're doing that at 12 what what
1: oh well i can remember my mother taking me to the you know like when it was knee high to a grasshopper and saying oh look at that toy rifle do you want father christmas to buy it for you you know bring it to you for christmas sort of thing you know and uh, and i said no mum i want a real one um and uh and I wanted to know how they worked and why they worked and the 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 power of being able to do something in one spot that changed something um, five hundred meters away, even whether it was putting a hole through a piece of paper or or shooting somebody's lunch um the thing is that 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 they could it could transcend space yeah and uh and move up on things and uh, i always found that fascinating
0: told your mum you wanted a real one which was your first gun then
1: oh i suppose the i had a a few air rifles that were not very good and then i um when i was about 14 13 or 14 i worked on a chicken farm um, cleaning out chicken pens and um, turkey pens and all that lot for my school holidays and got the money for my BSA air rifle which I still have Um, and um, yeah it was a big event and um, uh, you know like it's uh, just an air rifle but I sort of value it a lot
0: Do you still take it out and shoot it?
1: No not for some time I take it out and clean it um, and um, make sure it's okay Yeah, it's safe
0: So What was it like when you first bought it, you know, taking
1: it out and shooting it for the first time? Well, we were lucky then because I'd moved out of Stratford to a place called Cheadle and we used to be able to go and shoot at the tip and shoot rats and things like that and uh, that was really good and then I used to practise in the garden constantly, you know, shooting matchsticks and, and, uh, you know, like learning to, you know, teaching myself to shoot offhand um and I uh, used to have a lot of good times with that, yeah.
0: So how far did you go with your as a competitive shooter?
1: Oh I I think I was around about uh sixth in Great Britain, um in the in the around about nineteen sixty one and around about seventh in sixty two, um and then I joined the army in sixty three. Um
0: so putting it all into practice when you when you joined the army it must have been oh
1: it was a (laughs) come (laughs) down yeah
0: why was that
1: well well um i in the time from when i could read from when i was about seven i read everything about firearms um and when i was in the army cadets um the you know shot the 303 and brain guns and things like that you know like the they were all into the still in the 303 era whereas when i joined the regular army in 1963 that was all 308s and the slr and was was the um the rifle of the day the service rifle but the the army uh was probably more concerned in um having a bayonet on the end of it and having bayonet practice rather than shooting practice and um In comparison with competitive shooting, the Army was very, very far behind. Uh, I be, you know, was soon in the uh, Grenadier Guards um, rifle team uh, at Purbright, which was next the camp, next to Bisley, so that we could compete, and um, they kept me there for much longer than they should, um, so that all the inter-regimental shoots um, I was on the team And then um, we did have competitions against the civilian um, uh, people and it was very difficult for the Army teams to even compete against the civilian teams.
0: You'd think it would be the other way around.
1: Well, the the civilian teams got more practice and had much better equipment. And uh, it was... um, yeah, it was very difficult, and they, had, um, they were more interested. It was very, very difficult. I mean, the NCO in charge of the team had uh, couldn't understand which way to move the front sight um, on the SLR to uh, apply windage. And he basically kept me there in the armor shop because I could adjust the sights on the SLR he didn't want me to leave um because he didn't know how to do it and um i w- should have gone to battalion and um but they he kept transferring me back
0: did you think of um moving into sort of like a marksman with the with the army or a sharpshooter or a sniper and
1: oh I, I i was already beyond that you know like i was in in the um, the regiment i was in the I was at the top of the top six that that shot for the regiment. You know, like the the, um, uh, the sniper and marksman badges were were so easy. They're um, not. Um, there was not not much challenge in that area, <laughs> <laughs> and uh, yeah, so uh, the yeah the the army has a different uh, view, like it's. Like I, I can remember, one of the instructors when I was in recruits. He says, um, "Oh, and and this is the seven point six two NATO round. It's a three oh eight. It's the fastest you know uh, bullet in the world. You know, even that's a misnomer." And and I'd say uh, sergeant, uh, sergeant is uh, a two twenty swift, just four thousand feet per second, and it's a much fa- faster cartridge than than that, sergeant and he would scream at me and tell me to run round the uh, parade ground with a rifle above my head until he, <laughs> until he got tired, yeah. And uh, I mean, the um, person who, um, uh, like I was in another NCO, did the lecture on the Bren gun, and he knew the, uh, the manual on the Bren gun, right the word by rote, but if anybody interrupted him, he had to start again at the beginning and he had no comprehension really of of how it worked and what the gas system actually did and how it got its energy no comprehension at all but he knew it by rote and that's very good and they taught people to do it by rote and they didn't have to be well educated to get past that particular at uh, that particular standard
0: was it a frustrating time then in the army the
1: entire time Oh oh uh, this no I tried to um, get away for different courses to get away from Purbright. see Purbright was the guards depot. Training depots is where you've got all your intakes coming into and um, and then that feeds the battalions and and I was relegated to the training battalion at Purbright. But there was no way you could, for anybody to hide at Purbright. Purbright was uh, uh, like a continuous screaming, you know, of, um, of NCOs, at rookies, and sort of thing, you know. And I always wanted to get to the battalion, and no. then and I couldn't. But, so I would apply, I did a mounting course in North Wales at Tawyn uh, twice, and um, uh, did a, uh, halo course you know which is high altitude um, low opening um, uh, thing but the I was did the 12 weeks fitness course running around with telegraph poles and you know ropes and all this sort of stuff and then got told I was too tall and too heavy so I couldn't be on, go further with the course anyway you know and so that was back to Purbright again <laughs> and that continued and so when my option came up to take to get out you know to you know go back into civilian life i took the option um which was in 1967.
0: how did you find the transition
1: um not easy it's um you know like when when you you're so used to like when your mother asks you what you want for dinner and i still suffer from that um Because you have to think about what you want for your dinner, whereas it's generally just thrown at you in ration packs and things like that, you know, and or at the mess, and so those things, that institutionalisation that you, you know, you get used to, it stays with you a long time.
0: Um, So once you did leave the army, what happened after that?
1: Oh, I, I first of all applied i went to canada house uh, well, i got oh i got a job you know like in in engineering and um and you know it was not very little money and just round, you know local and i um uh, uh then i went to um canada house to see about going to canada you see but they wanted 270 pounds um it was the thing you know to fill out all the forms and to emigrate to Canada why Canada oh, I just thought there was a lot of open space and I could get a lot of shooting in you <laughs> see. and so that that was definitely beyond me so then I went to Australia house and um it's uh, it was in Manchester and um yeah they said oh yeah that's that's good, but there's not many people not many people your age group and 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 boys going there at the moment. The girls are going, but the boys aren't. And I said, "Oh, you know, why not?" And, <laughs> I, and they said, "Oh, well, there's, there's national service over there. You see, as soon as you get there, you're eligible for national Su- services. As soon as you arrive." Oh, right. And I said, "Well, that's that's okay. You know, that's a job straight away. You know, because we trained um, Australian soldiers, and they'd um, they used to get paid." more than us, and they used to get paid extra for eating our rations, so um, I thought that's pretty good, and yeah, they were pretty good guys, so I thought, yeah, Australia sounds fine to me, and if, it, if, and if the army wants me, I'm, you know, two years is nothing, you know, so. Um, and then uh, I didn't have 10 pound um, actually on me to pay the 10 pound POM type thing, and so they had to whip round the office and uh, and that's how I got here
0: wow (laughs) could have been could have been Canada but for 270
1: yeah but the um, so I I basically came for free and when I arrived in Melbourne I had um, a five pound note and um, I converted that to ten dollars and
0: so what were your thoughts once you once you arrived here what was the, the the the,
1: the plan. Oh, the plan. Well, first thing was to get job. I, I, I and, and they uh, put me in. I went first of all to the army recruiting office in Elizabeth Street in Melbourne, and they said, "Oh no, uh, we d- we don't want you." You know, like um, you know, yeah, you're eligible, but it's you know, uh, don't call us, we'll call you <laughs> type of thing. You know, and I said, "Oh, well, okay then." and I said do you know where I could stay and they said oh well there's an extra army camp at Fisherman's Bend down uh, down near the docks and so I stayed in a nissen hut there until I got a flat and then I worked at um, Mittens uh, in the tool room and um, we're making tools you know for uh, making knives and forks and sinks and baths and beer barrels and things like that and um, then I, um, th- they said, "Oh well, you're, um, you you'll go, you, you know, you- you're here now, you know, like you'll go into the you know, the next ballot thing," and so I was really. The yeah, yeah, yeah. And, so, and so and and so I was I was twenty, I think, or twenty-one, though, but it was still within the the period. So anyway, um, my birthday got called out. So I thought, oh well, that's it. You know, I mean, you know. Um, and then I filled out all the forms, and then I got a letter back from them, and it says, oh, as soon as you're still in the reserve for the British Army, we can't, we can't take you. Uh, and see, because um, I was still in the reserve of the British Army until I was sixty. Oh wow. uh, Under the Defence Act, yeah, but. The the Australian Army can do that, but they take. You they know, have to or, hold you
0: back if they needed you. Oh
1: yeah, yeah. And um, if I hadn't I've had a good excuse, <laughs> well, the uh, uh, the Australian Army can do it, but then they got to do a lot more paperwork to to get the other army out of the picture. You know, which is if somebody transfers over from the Brit Army to the Australian Army that's the proper way to do it and that would have worked out you know but it just didn't work out for me
0: so then what happened next
1: um, well I actually finished an apprenticeship at, at mittens and then I went to I went I worked at John's hydraulics for a few months um, then I went to work for the social welfare department of Victoria as like a um, youth officer prison guard type thing and I was there doing that until 1974
0: and you met some um, pretty interesting people during that time
1: oh well there was yeah there was lots of um, people coming in and out you know um, and have you got specifically anybody in mind um,
0: well as i say, let's run through a couple of the highlights that that or low lights low lights <laughs> definitely
1: low lights well, some of the staff were really highlights i am still you know very friendly with uh, some of the guys that're still alive from that time um, and but some of the low lights you know like chopper reed and lofman and a few of the the others um, were a bit have had disastrous, you know, careers since then.
0: You talk about the sort of like uh, people like Chopper Reed. Um, once they were incarcerated, how did they change? How did how was managing sort of the more no- notorious um, criminals?
1: Oh, well, I think he, he was put in from, this is from my memory, um, he was put in there for uh, yeah. doing things to little girls that he shouldn't have done, yeah? And um, he uh, was in the, he would have been about 18 at that time and he was in J Division. And um, then the psychiatrists and the the medical people had been at him and another one, um, uh, I think his was Lofman and for the same reasons and they've got them on these hormone tablets and um, uh, that was supposed to um, keep them uh, with a, a mind change you know not so interested in little girls uh, I, well I, I wouldn't be qualified to say that I mean and and as there were no girls at all in Pentridge at the time <laughs> 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 it was um and there's later on they did bring some women prison officers in there and that was bloody deb- a debacle um but um they the psychiatrists had got them on these hormone tablets you see and they they grew boobs you see and of course the other prisoners um thought that was fantastic you know and uh, <laughs> and, and 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 whereas you hear about some uh prisons where they they don't like um, child uh, pedophiles and so forth and they get a hard time Um, they you know they were very popular um, and with the uh, with the inmates at the time why is that? because they had boobs
0: oh right okay just for that reason
1: yeah um, like it's uh, I'm not saying that all of the prisoners were like that at all but um it seemed to be a a large percentage uh, were that way inclined
0: how did it affect you dealing with that sort of person day in day out
1: um well i a lot of the staff used to have um you know like drink a lot or take valium pills or stuff like that but i suppose that because of uh, of my early life in the Army, you sort of sense of humor and you sort of um it didn't really and I suppose you don't sort of see it on a human basis as it you know like is what you do um I suppose doctors and nurses have the same sort of thing, you know, like you. You build a wall in your mind and that's them and this is us you know and and you do that's how you handle it i think
0: what about though a situation did you ever find yourself in situations that you thought oh crap i'm in trouble here
1: oh oh sometimes there was a lot of violence but i was always very well equipped for that Um, and and um there's also a uh because of the intellectual advantage um they even when you they're very outnumbered um they they really couldn't get it together to um to do much i never i never felt really insecure and i worked in h division and um the uh psychiatric ward as well you know like um i used to like that place better than <laughs> than J Division actually yeah.
0: but, tell us about J Division what's
1: oh J Division was a junior you know 18 to 21 that was actually probably the most violent um, division really yeah because they they've got a lot of vim and vigor at that time when you get H you, know, you get lots of murderers and everything but they're, they're long term prisoners and uh, and and then the then the, the, the general um Prison division is a very is a hierarchical situation um like the um uh there was a jewish um uh prisoner that used to do um, the tax returns for all the, <laughs> the warders, and uh, yeah and, and i used to probably oppose the kingpins mainly you know why like, because there's a hierarchical structure, you know, of, of, you know, run on violence through what everybody does and what job everybody gets. And when I was there in Victoria at that time, the the uh, Pommy British Crim, they used to r- run the place. I think that would be different now that they would be more uh, cosmopolitan, but they, um, the, there used to be a lot of aboriginals in there as well they, they used to fill up um during the winter because they wanted somewhere warm to stay you know but the, yeah i, I um I, I used to like it because i could get away hunting for i could work seven day shifts and get seven days off and and then i um went and uh run an outward bound um uh division that was at Buxton in the mountains, and we used to take um twenty prisoners you know for a week or two weeks and um is this minimum security yeah, at, just before their release, you know, so that they they had you know they had no compunction to run off because they only had you know like weeks to go, and uh, I used to um organize um, map reading and fishing and um, uh, sort of camping type things with them yeah.
0: How did they react to that after being institutionalised for a stretch in prison? Uh,
1: yeah, yeah, good Yeah, I, n- I never lo- uh, in all, probably two years I never lost one none, none of them disappeared on me or anything like that well one disappeared once and, and then came back and he'd stolen my wallet as well, so I was glad he came back. <laughs> but they were there was there was good. We had a lot of fun. If any time that the battery was flat or anything, they always get the car starting, you know, because <laughs> good at stealing cars. <laughs> <laughs> or, or if you lost the key, <laughs> yeah, it was quite good. Yeah.
0: Okay, so as you say, just doing private hunting as well at, at the time, going yeah, yeah, chasing the, yeah, yeah, yeah shooting?
1: competitive shooting, yeah.
0: So so what about the move to Queensland then? What brought you up um, to the Sunshine State? Well,
1: I moved to East Gippsland um, first and, and the, my parents come out. They, they basically folded me to Australia in a way. Um, we caught up a bit on the way. But they, um, they bought a general store in a place called Bonang in East Gippsland and um, they found that they couldn't run it themselves and they needed somebody to come and help them and so uh there was probably more work than what they could do but probably not enough you know for me as well you know so um when we moved to the store or they you know and i came back to to melbourne then resigned from uh, the social welfare department and then i moved back up there i then um started selling uh, firearms and got a firearm dealer's license and um, expanded that area of the general store Um, that's where Owen guns started and uh, the um and started i was the president of the local rifle um, uh, club and yeah got a lot of shooting there and um I earned extra money um shooting rabbits um for the chillers uh hundreds of rabbits every night um and we'd take them to the chillers in the morning and um then um uh roo skins um thousands and thousands of roos the skins you know went to the skin buyers and and all of that helped me um get the capital to you know put into buying guns and ammunition
0: which uh, animal was your favorite when you were uh, when you're out chasing
1: uh, I don't think it was any sort of favorite I mean rabbits have to be shot and the and I do think it's a lot more humane to shoot them there rather than to poison them, and that's the only other alternative and kangaroos. They have to be shot, and if if they didn't get shot, the farmers would have definitely poisoned them as well. Um, I, you know, uh, it, it's sad. It has to has to happen, um, but we we had to maximize as much, um, uh, you know, financial for the work that was involved, um, and um, so as well as at the same time as I was. Um, uh, Qualified fitter and Turner, I also began um, rebarrelling firearms and fitting triggers, importing triggers and importing guns and importing gun parts. And then um, uh, my parents decided to sell the store and um, move to Queensland, and so I decided to do move owing guns from there to Queensland, and so um with uh i drove a uh my nissan patrol with the caravan and um mum and dad and they had you know their own car and everything three dogs and uh we came up to went as far as maryborough and um maryborough looked a look very straight straight and um didn't look like it had the same sort of character as what gimpy had so I came back to Gympie and found a shop and opened Owen Guns within a, con- within a fortnight.
0: It's continued to grow. Are you surprised with the the way the, the shop's grown over the years?
1: Oh, well, not surprised so much. I mean, the first few years it grew much quicker. Um, but then the legislation and the uh, court cases and uh, the uh, continual sort of... Um, oppression by the you know the queensland police really put us back a lot of years you know behind like at one time in 1996 we had five shops and we had an importing business and where you, you see us today was the was our wholesale warehouse and that was full of guns that we would be wholesaling to other um other shops and after 1996, and the uh, you know not getting the compensation from the buyback, which all of our competitors got millions out of, um, it put us way down, you know, the heap really. But Gympie's always been a good shooting town, and and it's been very good for me, loyal to us, and and we always wanted to put things back for Gympie, really.
0: You talk about that buyback scheme, the whole Martin Bryant uh, situation. What do you think about what they did, what John Howard did with the whole taking control of the the gun industry?
1: Well, the I was sort of um, lucky in a way, you know. Uh, like, I was very interested in, because I'd suffered in Britain with uh, gun laws and uh and how the, the oppression you know the, and impositions that are put on people for no logical reason and of course um i was involved in the opposing gun laws uh, like we um i was half owner of lock stock and barrel uh shooting magazine and uh wrote countless articles you know about it so i was well informed and prophesied i suppose what was going to occur and um when uh, john howard was elected and signed letters to the sport and shooters association um promising that he would reform and uh fix up the, the uh, previous oppressions um i was fully aware that it, that wouldn't be the case that the um, that that wouldn't be the truth of the matter and so when uh, he did his his worst and started to you know work on constitutionally um, by um, bullying the states uh, to do what he wanted um, I So
0: was, he had an agenda before
1: Oh I'm sure he did yeah yeah and and the the guy who who orchestrated it was a guy called Daryl Smeaton. He was worked at the Attorney General's department and he he went to the um, uh, the Cairo conference in the in Egypt in the oh would it be seventy I on, nineteen no, nineteen ninety Five or 1994, and he came back with the 23 points that that we had imposed on us, and I knew that he had them there, and I'd had a few conversations with him to try and get copies of it, and I finally did get a copy of it, not long before John Howard then, you know, the gun laws came in, and so that that basically they could then sign the. Um, civilian disarmament um, treaty which was what the aim of that un meeting was there and at that meeting was rebecca peters um, who was um, working at that time for uh, one of the soros um, trusts um, and uh, uh, you know like probably a few other people as well she's involved with the un now she was if you remember she was over here, an American lady that was anti-gun control um, Australia, uh, or gun control Australian, was it? Anyway. And uh, she's gone back there. She works for George Soros in the UN now. And um, so I knew that that was the agenda and what they would be pushing to bring in.
0: Why do you think John Howard had that uh, push to... to basically de-gun the population
1: well i think he's he's sort of got a very sort of like you know a person who's got a chip on their shoulder or um, they've got their own personal feeling of insignificance and 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 they don't want power in anybody else's hands or some sort of uh phobia um i think there's a word for it i think it's called something like hoplophobia and uh that would probably be what he's suffering from.
0: Is it important to have guns in the community? Oh,
1: well, yeah. Um, it's, it's uh, you can't really, uh, once somebody invents, you know, a tool, um, the tools, you know, within human knowledge, you can't really say, well, we'll take a community and take every one of those tools out of it. Um, i mean you might some they might try these days to send the information down the memory hole you know like from 1984 but the um uh it's very difficult and so oh, is it fair for some people to have them and some people to not have them uh and some people might want them and some people might not want them but if you say only these people shall have them and those people won't um, there is a, a certain problem with society when it does that.
0: And is the licensing that we have too regimented?
1: Well, it's illogical and useless. It's a, a waste of human endeavour. Um, I mean, bad people can get whatever they like, whenever they like. Um, and so it uh, it's really puts an imposition in, in on the people who want them for their personal security, their home security, want them for their business security, who may want them for eradicating pests on their property or for putting humane, and they put their stock down. Or they may um, want them for competition, or they might be collectors and they've got that, they've got a human right to fulfill those needs. And have they, got
0: it, have they got it right in the states where they, the you know I think it's the Second Amendment, the right to bear arms.
1: Well, well, I, I do think that 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 is right, but it's not just right there; it's right here too, because we have the um, the Bill of Rights of 1689, and uh, which says that um, well, it says in one part of it, all the Catholics are armed, and the Catholics should not disarm the Protestants. And, and and then it goes on further to say that, that all, all Protestants, you know, good people, basically, um, should have, have arms suitable for their defense. And it's a human right, and it's a long established human right, but way back from Magna Carta or the Bible. Um, and uh, it's, uh, uh, yeah, for people to come along and say, we want to make, one section of the community powerless and the other section of the community in power, with power, that's always a problem. There's no good solutions that have worked that way.
0: How would you like to see the system changed? What would you like to see in place?
1: Um, Well, I think that, uh, for starters, if we could keep the uh, people that deserved to be in jail in jail and uh uh it would be a lot safer community and so that would allow us to say well uh if people you know citizens have got a, we trust them with a two-ton projectile to drive a car um, if they got their driver's license they can certainly buy a firearm um and um uh, and use it for their own um, purposes um I don't think there should be anything more than that and if there is a person that's out there that's uh, got a mental problem a prohibited person uh, these days it's very easy to give every you know and the gun shops are where all the licensing is done you know the 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 queensland police and all the police forces behind it that are supposed to Uh, compile the information that comes from the gun shops they're two or three years behind anyway and and so and and very often the third of the information that they process is wrong and so the any register or keeping of the information is totally unreliable anyway so they should just leave it with the registration of the firearm at the gun shop which whose records are there for 15 years that they have to keep them and so if there's anything that needs to be tried to be tracked down the information is at least there available for them but other than that i don't think that there's any anything else that needs to be there
0: what do you think can happen though in the next say five ten years as far as gun control
1: um well i think that the uh, the police forces in Australia, for instance, uh, are finding it to be a, a nightmare. Like because there's a 35% increase of people wanting to get licences every year, and it's a and it's it's a compact. And there's only people that are dying off. You know, when is maybe five or ten percent. You know, so you got a 25% increase every year, and and especially this year it has been enormous. And they just can't keep up, so it's all going to fall in a heap for them anyway. Um, they bought a computer for about 25 million um, some years ago, and then Canada got rid of their system, and so they can't get the updates, you know, for it. And uh, it's just it's the same computer that messed up the wages for the the health department, you know, like it's it's just a mess. And nobody can get them on the phone. They they can't get anything corrected. It's um, They've built their own nightmare. And that's. So I can't see them doing much further than that. They they did say that there'd be another amnesty this year um, where people can, you know, hand in stuff easily and we can put them on their licenses for them. But they. um, It might be cancelled because of the the disease year, you know. um, um, But they. There is an an ordinary amnesty anyway, people take them into the gun shop, they book them in, there's no um, ramifications anyway, but we can't um, uh, put them onto their license with a form, which we can do during an amnesty period, which they could make all the time, then they wouldn't have to bother with this permit to acquire rubbish that they impose on everybody, and the $40 fee.
0: And
1: you is is it just revenue the permit you require? Yeah, it's just revenue. Yeah, to you know, jobs for the boys, you create more jobs. Um there's no purpose for it because all the registrations done, the police commissioners registers completed by the gun shops anyway. It's just ridiculous.
0: So is it something that you think police want?
1: You no, know, the ordinary policeman. The ordinary policeman, it's a nightmare for them as well. Um, especially with their own firearms. Uh, and when they got people turning up at the police station who want any queries and they have to try and deal with weapons licensing, well, you know, like, they throw their hands up in the air and send them to the gun shop because they just can't cope with it.
0: You say that um, only the bad people can get whatever they want. Whenever they want. So how do they get them?
1: Well, uh, lots, of, uh, lots of them come in parts. Uh, lots of them are manufactured. Um, and... Um, yeah lots um, imported in within car parts and uh, washing machines and
0: uh, really? yeah gee you wouldn't think about something like that I suppose <laughs> <laughs>
1: well it's, there's, there's no shortage for them and they, they're getting used to it and actually some of their um, some of their uh, firearms are, are cheaper and also the the police lose them you know like uh, and they have like New South Wales Police lost 1,200 at once you know and then there's um, Fire Cummings in the Canberra Times wrote an article about the Defence Department losing 5,000 so you know like there's little point in making us suffer
0: Well there is little point so what is the point why, why are they making us still well, suffer
1: Well they've, they've got I think they you know like as I said with John Howard and people like that they, they, have a, they have some sort of fear or hoplophobia about firearms and, and they, you know, like they have armed guards themselves, they don't mind them at all, um, but they, they don't like the idea that the population um, has got that power. I mean, it's the same when the Germans took France or Jersey and they got the police to, their own police to disarm the population. And that's the same sort of thing in a way, isn't it? Um, but, um, I mean, I, I'm not su- suggesting that you know that they've got some agenda the same way that the um, Nazis had, but the, uh, it's, that's the reason why the Second Amendment is there, is to, for people to be able to defend themselves against anything like that and that was why the Bill of Rights was put there in 1689 because some of the Habs you know, population were trying to take them from the have-nots and, and that's, just, that's the reason for those laws. And, um, but this all in a flux of change, you know, like what's happening in the world at the present time is, um, uh, is definitely, you know, we're in a state of change. Um, we've got people who want to destroy uh, orchestrated destruction of the Western civilization and um, they, um, they're about, you know, with all these rioters and this um, some lives matter but some lives don't, you know, idea. Um, they, um, they, they're paid, well-paid, you know, organisers the bricks get left in the right places. Um, the shops, they all ring phone one another up when they're, they're um, looting. It's um, it's all well well organised. Well, there that, is.
0: I did read somewhere that they were talking that police um, did distribute some of the blocks. Right. Um, and then they could go in and use it as an excuse to break up the riots.
1: Oh, that's a, that's a novel one and not not heard that one yet but you know like it's um it's very difficult to uh, see where the where the truth is but the you just have to look at the opposites don't you you know like if you didn't have prisons yeah for incarceration well you what you do you go back to the old slavery days you know and they oppose that as well you know so like in the biblical times if somebody stole an item they had to pay it back seven times and if they couldn't they were enslaved for seven years and if they ran off then they were executed um all of that you know like the prison system and the police system are all um cuddly soft alternatives to the fact that what it is when society doesn't have them i mean nobody's got probably more um uh, argument you know like or had more disagreements with the police than than me but I, 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 you have to say that they're an important part of society and um it keeps the norms there they don't really have to be in front of every shop to stop them being looted But their presence and their formation, I think Robert Peel's idea was very good, Um, and though it's probably got a little bit more militant um, in the last few years than what his intent was. Um, And then if you look at prisons and if you think, well, if there's no prisons and no prison warders and all that lot, well, you've only got the alternative of um, enslaving or... You know, uh, capital punishment, and and I'm sure that they they wouldn't like that alternative. And if there is no police, well, then the only alternative for that is for vigilantes. You know, like the people who would want to protect their shops.
0: Because there's no guns on the streets, essentially. Do you think that we could end up with a US-style riot looting sort of problem here? Because they're already starting with the with the demonstrations.
1: Oh. uh, the the people who are orchestrating this are, are not just trying to do it in the states they they're planning and organizing um this in, in in every western country from britain um europe and australia and um they will uh, like open society uh, which is you know funds get up and Uh, all of these structures and funds um, gun control australia um, are all funded you know george Soros gave them 18 billion last year and then um it's it's sort of um where he gets his money from is probably the chinese communist party or somebody who is funding him and that filters down to cause um uh, civil unrest in in the western world and that is uh, to me it's very obvious you know what the, you know, that's what the cause is um i mean it's funny too you know like there seems to be anti slavery yet one of the big um beneficiaries of george soros's money is the democrat party and and the founder of the democrat party was thomas jefferson and thomas jefferson was a slave owner that had children with his slaves and um uh he founded the democrat party you know like it's it's sort of um and then it's crazy isn't it the way that they these rioters want to attack the statue of winston churchill and they call him a racist but what about the other guy you know the guy that winston churchill was opposing i mean he was a racist and Winston Churchill actually opposed it and then they're even picking on Queen Victoria now at the moment and and she was one of the ardent um, anti-slavers and and had the whole um, British army and the British government and sending General Gordon off to Khartoum to stop slavery and yeah they have sort of got the lost the plot really but I don't suppose we should look for logic because there isn't any and it's really just a movement to um, destroy Western civilization. and if they do they probably won't like the outcome of that either.
0: Who's the beneficiary out of all of this? The Chinese?
1: Well, they seem to be the ones who, um, who have been benefiting greatly from and this in the past and they have I mean even with the COVID-19 like even though they lost I'm probably still are losing millions of people in China they uh, the communist party their 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 leadership doesn't mind at all um, because they're not short of people and so um, they will be the beneficiaries because they've got all the factories and all the tools and all the markets sewn up, and they can treat you know Australia with total disdain. Um,
0: you think that um, with this whole COVID situation that um, uh, it's going to bring, a, a, as you say, well your shop's been been quite busy over the um, over the whole COVID situation. You think it's going to put pressure on on uh, governments and and institutions to bring. Uh, to rearm the the population
1: oh i don't think i don't see it working that way uh, i think it'd be the reverse of that and we've already had um when the uh COVID-19 lockdown you know uh, so-called came on um the one of the first moves from the state government was, was to try and close the gun shops uh, for no good reason at all um, uh, I mean, there's very little difference between buying a tool at um, Bunnings or buying one at Owen Guns or any other gun shop. But they um, they really did um, have a good try at uh, locking them down. Um, but the thing is, is that it's, it will be the resistance from, from the people themselves. Um, the fear that's um, caused by the looters and rioters and so forth these idiots is what will fuel and make the government change its mind that will be the catalyst and you know like the so the looters and the rioters and these idiots are um, will be as usual fueling their own downfall
0: how do you think it'll play out
1: well Look, I'm not writing off the you know, the idea that there might be in some countries a civil war, um, but
0: in the states,
1: uh, well, it might not be general. It might be on a state basis, but there is already areas of Seattle that they've that they've captured and made into no-go areas, and uh, and when you've got the uh, Los Angeles. You know, local government giving uh, blacks' lives matter two hundred and fifty million, and defunding its police force. It's obviously that the um, there's going to be problems there, but humongous problems. And um, I mean, like when there was the big riots in the was it the 1980s or 1990s in Hollywood, and Jack Nicholson and and lots of um, actors. We ran round to Charlton Heston's house to try and get a firearm so they could defend their mansions <laughs> um, I think that I think that they, it, that sort of changed people's minds and even when the disease was starting in the States and in March 150 million uh, new firearms were sold in in, in, in the, the USA A large, apparently a large percentage of them were you know, democratic you know um, uh Sort of liberal uh, people who um, had never had firearms before, and that um, insecurity pushes the uh, manufacture of firearms.
0: Mm. Okay, let's um, come back to uh, come back to to home and that uh, there's a book that you've written. Tell us about that. The 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 range.
1: Um, oh, the range officers' handbook. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, that's. Um, I wrote that. It took me six years to write it. Um, to basically, because the older members of the clubs were, you know, like who were the range officers for since the, the days when the ranges were all run under the Defence Act. And the club secretary could call out the militia. And that's what all the club members were. Um, we used to all pay um, an extra dollar um uh, to the um uh the national rifle association and we had to take the oath you know as um uh, to defend australia and we could be called out by the club captain well all of those club captains were dying off you know the tommy millers and who did it for years all that information that they had australians don't um sort of take heed or uh, not easily controlled by um, by sort of badges or um, uh, uh, awards or rank they they are much more influenced by knowledge and they'll um, uh, conform with the um, with the rules when they know that it's a logical reason and that the people who are are in charge have got that um, knowledge that they respect. They respect the knowledge, I suppose. So I put the book together to give as much knowledge as a general knowledge about firearms, and the competitive shooting, and um, firearm safety and cleaning, and you know, a whole range of subjects. I think there's about 500 and odd pages of it, and uh, yeah, that's that's why I did that and
0: what sort of person is interested in looking at that sort of information
1: um well uh, very really um like there's thousands of them have been sold um and um doctors well even the police have bought it and put that in their libraries you know technical library and uh, they've um uh, it's in the um, defense academy and uh, the library and the federal police. They've, and I know one of the federal policemen in Canberra. He has one on his desk with my name on it, so that you know people walk past and see Ron Owen's name on his desk. They, they get the message.
0: What's the message?
1: The message, um, well, I, I, he obviously thinks that Ron Owen's a pretty good bloke, you know, and, mm-hmm. and um, my name would be unpopular in some areas.
0: So, still competitive shooting these days? Oh, a
1: bit of a holiday because of this disease, and I usually shoot bench rest on a Wednesday night, and I've not been able to go. Um,
0: Favorite weapon?
1: Well, I never think of them as that. I think of them as firearms, you know, or, or air rifles. I don't sort of think of them as weapons. Weapons, to me, I think of a, an axe or a. Uh, a sword or a, something that you chop up okay with. then I'll
0: rephrase favourite firearm
1: yeah favourite well, 6.5 Swedish Morse I like them um, yeah, I like Bren guns Um yeah I like SLRs you know still got one on the wall in the museum um, yeah tell us
0: about the museum it's something that you're pretty passionate about oh well yeah
1: um, I've always been collecting firearms and accessories and stuff and um the um, and I thought that what was needed was to uh, put a display firearms up as a, as a not just you know a military museum and not just a but a museum that showed all of the inventions and the creativity that people have had to do to put the um, to put you know to get the patents approved and and get their, their firearm into production and how many inventions there are. And then as I started to build it and we started to do the displays, I also got the idea that what we were doing was normalising firearm ownership, not, le- not showing that it's a legal pursuit, but showing that it's normal for people to collect firearms and to people to display them. And
0: um I remember there was a classic photo of Bob Catter seated in his um in his lounge room with three wet rifles uh, up on a rack behind him this as well before the uh, the buyback. Mm. And um, as you say, usually just displayed.
1: Yeah. The media made a lot of that. Bob Bob has been to see the museum, um, and uh, yeah, quite a lot of people, um uh have been uh, politicians. I've uh, been to see it. not John Howard. We haven't had John <laughs> Howard. Yet.
0: Funny that. Well, thank you so much for um, spending some time with yeah, us. Yeah, easy. And um, I look forward to hopefully yeah. catching up again.
1: Yeah. Well, I look
0: forward to seeing you know what you where what you do with it. <laughs> Anyways. Cheers. Okay. And don't forget that the podcast is brought to you by Mary Mark Medical in Gympie. You can call them on 5481873 873. Gympie Foam and Rubber, your local store that specialises in foam cut to size. And if you mention the Over the Bonnet podcast and ask for your discount, you'll get 10% off the marked price. And finally, the podcast is brought to you by NICAD Earth Moving. Call them on 0488